Let's begin this evening by retaking the refuges and precepts. So it's a chance for all of us to recommit to that practice of sila. And if any of you are wanting to switch, uh, moving up or down in that, that list, a time to do that formally. Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhasa Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhasa Namo tasa bhagavato arahato Sama Sambuddhasa Buddhang Saranang Chami Dhammang Saranang Chami Sangang Saranang Chami Dutiampi Buddhang Saranang Chami Dutiampi Dhammang Saranang Chami Dutiampi Sangang Saranang Chami Datiampi Buddhang Saranang Chami Datiampi Dhammang Saranang Chami Datiampi Sangang Saranang Chami Vanati Pata Veramani Sikapadang Samadhyami Adina dana veramani sikapadang samadhyami Abramacharya veramani sikapadang samadhyami Musawada veramani sikapadang samadhyami Sura Meraya Majapamadatana Veramani Sikapadang Samadhyami Vikala Bhojana Veramani Sikapadang Samadhyami Nacha Gita Vadita Visukadasana Malaganda Vilipana Dharana Mandana Vibhusanatana Veramani Sikapadang Samadhyami Uchasayana Mahasayana Veramani Sikapadang Samadhyami Idang Me Silang Nyana Pala Nyana Sa Pachayo Hotu Believe me that we're very aware that we spend a lot of time talking about what's difficult in our practice. Difficult states of mind and heart, difficult experiences of the body, the hindrances, forms of pain or suffering. But I always feel when I give a talk like that, that at least I know everyone can relate. And there's something about sharing those experiences that we kind of bond on that level 
But it can feel sometimes like that's the lens through which we look at our experience, that we're kind of on pain patrol, as one person called it, or even hindrance patrol, and the antenna, the radar are out just for whatever's difficult. How many times have you noted unpleasant so far on this retreat? Uh, uh, someone on another retreat came in and, and spoke about this, and I could relate because I'm also a Monty Python fan. And if you know the spam skit, she said it's like, you know, this dish is dukkha, dukkha, and more dukkha. And you say, well, isn't there a dish without any dukkha? And, oh, there's this experience. It only has a little bit of dukkha in it. <laughs> or it's, you know, dukkha, 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 lunch, nap, more dukkha. And that can seem like that's what a day is like sometimes. But it's really important to both recognize suffering and be able to bring it into our practice and accept it. This is a rich and deep part of our practice here. But just as important is to notice the wholesome states of mind, the beautiful qualities of heart that we are also developing here. And even though the Buddha often talked about freedom, he always talked about it in relationship to the end of freedom, to uh, the cultivation of these beautiful qualities of heart, of finding freedom. And as Ajahn Sumedho, that teacher that we've often quoted, would say, you have to know the difficult to know its opposite. So he'd say you have to know anger to know non-anger. You have to know uh, agitation to know what non-agitation is like. And it's really like you have to know dukkha, to know sukha. Sukha is the Pali word for happiness. And so that's a lot of what our practice is about. As we open to what's difficult, it actually um, can reveal to us, too, the possibility of great happiness and great freedom. So what I want to talk to to you about tonight is this beautiful list that the Buddha um, considered essential in our practice of wholesome factors called the seven factors of enlightenment, these seven qualities of mind or heart that actually are necessary to develop as we journey on this path towards greater and greater freedom. And I can always remember when I would hear this talk given, it seemed like some pie-in-the-sky kind of fantasy about what practice could be like, because I was on the dukkha side of things. You know, it was dukkha or boredom. It was kind of moving between those two. And when people would talk about these beautiful and sublime states, I just kind of put it on hold and think, well, maybe sometime in the future, not now. But as I've practiced more and also explored this list more, I've really seen the possibility and perhaps what I was missing when I was having that relationship to it, of um, noticing what's actually here and the beauty in that, and that so often because we're focused on what's difficult, we skim over what's beautiful or what's working in our practice and don't give it full value, don't actually acknowledge that it's there. And of course these experiences may be subtle, in the beginning, but that's why we need to actually bring our mindfulness to them and train ourselves to notice them because they are there in our practice. It's just a a question of really um, being willing to acknowledge them and in that see that it's not so distant a set of experiences that any time we actually work with our experience directly, work with a difficulty or a hindrance, any time we open to something, we are cultivating these beautiful factors of mind known as the seven factors of enlightenment. 
just even by being mindful, the purification of that, the quality of attention that we bring to our experience when we're mindfulness, mindful of it, is actually cultivating these factors. So hopefully you'll see that they're not so separate from your current experience. So as you know, the Buddha loved to make lists. That seemed to be his penchant. Everything is listed and ordered and numbered. Um, and there can be a, um, a sense of, I don't know, a constriction in that. But actually, what I find is knowing these lists and opening to them, again, brings a sense of possibility. Maps are really helpful. If we don't know what the terrain is, if we haven't traveled in a certain direction ourselves, to have someone lay out a map for us really provides um, a sense of guidance and possibility. I recently read a New Yorker article on the evolution of maps and map making, speaking, talk, beginning with the very early attempts at, at mapping the world, mapping the whole earth, um, and you know, to a, an era when everything was mapped, and we'd all have these huge maps or atlases, but big, big pieces of paper usually, you know, you'd unfold and the whole many hundreds of miles might be depicted on these maps. But the new way of getting maps or directions is over the internet or GPS. And it's a very different way at, at looking at a map, especially the internet kind of way. Or how do I get from here to there? You get on Yahoo Maps and you get this printed out list of directions. And it sounds so authoritative. You think you can put your trust in it. Go 0.8 miles, turn left at so-and-so. Go one and three-quarter miles, turn right at this place. And it seems really trustworthy. You know, it's printed and you got it from the internet. But how many of us have done that and been tripped up? You know, we put our faith in these maps. And the trouble with those linear kind of maps is if one piece of information is wrong, or if you miss a turn, then you're completely lost because you have no context for where you are. I had this experience myself not so long ago. I had to do a day long in Sacramento, which is about a two hours drive from where we live, and it started at nine, so I had to get up very, you know, leave home at six thirty to get there in time. And this organizer said, "Send you the directions, get you right to the door." And so I followed them, and all very well and good, until it said, uh, take the exit for 116, and then t- head east. And, you know, driving along, driving along, none of the exits mentioned 116. It wasn't in any of the references that I saw. And after a while, you know, you keep going, and you start getting into countryside again. It's like, this isn't working. I had to pull off. Luckily, I had a real map and could find myself on it and realize that there was 116, but it's also West Street, and it's also the street or the road that leads to such and such a town. And with those extra pieces of information, I could find it. But just with that linear guidance, it's not possible. And it's even the same with the GPS. You know, we're getting so used to that kind of map making. But it's this little square of information. And you can move it around, but it's still just a little square. What they say about maps is they provide us what they call a God's eye view, where you can really see the whole terrain and locate yourself in it and see possibilities, see alternatives, see things that you might want to try out instead of being limited to a certain route that someone else has determined for you. So this is why maps that are very 
spacious, very broad in their application, are helpful for us on our practice. And of course, knowing a map just intellectually is theoretical. It's only when we actually tread the path ourselves and have those direct experiences that it becomes alive for us, that we can really say we know the map. And it's like when you're driving. You can go a route many times as a passenger and not know it at all. It's when you're driving, when you are the person having the experience, that the knowledge actually deepens. And I know we're always looking for in our practice the right way. You know, so many of the questions are, is this the right way to do it? You know, what, what should I do in this situation? Or are we looking for the quickest way? We don't say that, but that's really what's underneath those questions. Is, I know there's a better way. You just haven't told us yet what that is. You're letting us fumble around in the dark. Well, it's because it only works if you discover it for yourself. We give you the map. We say, look, there's these kinds of experiences, there's these ways of relating, there's these different tools that we can offer to you, but each one of us has to find our own way on this map. So maps are really helpful when they're used skillfully and when we actually put them into practice, when we follow them and work on them. And so with this teaching on the seven factors, it's very much that way. For you to be able to say when you have an experience, oh, that's what that is, that's calm, or that's interest. Or to know for yourself, oh, perhaps this is a little lacking in my practice. I need to go a little more in this direction, out of skillfulness, out of wisdom. This is what these kind of maps can do. They can invite us to incline the mind in certain directions. And when it's done skillfully, this, this gentle accepting intention of inclining the mind towards something can be really helpful, really wholesome. A few years ago, I did a retreat here at IMS about this time of year where my intention was to do a period of concentration practice, just very simple uh, anapana breath meditation for, for concentration, and then to open up to vipassana practice, to mindfulness practice, And I did my two weeks, and it was very sweet and developed uh, quite well, the concentration, and got very calm and focused and steady, um, absorbed in the practice. And then came the time that I'd committed to when I would change to Vipassana. And I noticed as that time got closer, a great deal of reluctance to do that, because if you've done any concentration practice, there's a, 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 a feeling of cocooning that can come. As you get absorbed into the object, there's a simplicity to it and a sweetness to it that's quite beguiling, is is very comforting and very reassuring. And the thought of opening up and including something else, it was like, oh, do I want to even do that? And as I sat down for that sitting, because you have to just shift, you know, you have to move from that sense of focus into openness, I could feel the reluctance and kind of like, what's out there? You know, I've been so secluded with the breath and a a little bit of apprehension. But as I opened up, I can still so distinctly remember the room I was sitting in and and the experiences that happened. The mind, uh, in letting go of its its, uh, fairly one-pointedness and including all of the objects of my experience, felt very light. And one of the things that concentration does is develop a light and malleable mind. And I just could really feel that because I was very present and and awake and alert. And as I looked at my experience and was kind of almost delighting in it because of the contrast to what I was expecting, 
the thought that came to mind is, oh, some of the seven factors are here. And it wasn't a thought that I had had much before in my practice. You know, usually it was here's suffering and, well, here's some acceptance, but, you know, to actually say, look, what's happening? And I kind of could go through the list and, and just notice the impact of each of the factors and feel that they were somewhat in balance not claiming anything about that. It was a very simple, direct experience, but it just was a pointer to me of what was possible as these factors might deepen and and be brought more into balance. And so on that retreat, um, one of the things I did was really explore for myself the seven factors and and how um, I noticed their impact in my practice. And so this talk came a lot out of that retreat. So there are seven factors, and in the wise way of the Buddha, there are three arousing factors and three calming factors, and mindfulness is the balancing factor that actually um, begins the list and and suffuses the whole of all of the other factors. It's, It's so necessary. The arousing factors are investigation, energy, and rapture. I'll go into all of them in more detail, in the calming factors of uh, tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. And there's a way in which the list is somewhat linear. I mean, it's never that clearly so, but you can see a kind of developmental nature to the list. But it's not so helpful to think, well, today I'll work on this and tomorrow I'll work on that. They're much more mysterious than that. And, of course, it's even more holographic where each one... Um, supports and is supported by the other factors. So a circle, holographic, and kind of lines going in and out the whole in, in between all of them. Um, there's a lot of feedback loops in it, and it's 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 just a it's I think it's more helpful to see it that way than like the internet map that's just a direct one way street, uh, because then we can get confused or lost to really see them as a whole. But it begins with mindfulness. Sati is a Pali word. And of course, we've spoken a lot about that. That's all we ever really speak about is mindfulness and all the different things that we can be mindful of. Um, it's this Mindfulness is just this simple act of noticing what's happening, but knowing that we're noticing what's happening. And it's that, that knowing part is, is what brings it, what makes it mindfulness. Uh, Christina Feldman, in her book on simplicity, has this really nice description, a very complete description of mindfulness. She says, Mindfulness is not only a technique or a practice, but is concerned with the quality of wakeful presence and the willingness to learn that we bring to each moment in our lives. It is saturated with sensitivity and curiosity with the willingness to make peace with all moments and all things, and the deep wish to be free wherever we are. Mindfulness illuminates all things and all activities. So you can see from that all of the uh, different qualities that mindfulness cultivates, and it really becomes kind of like our currency. You know, we're not so concerned with the NASDAQ or the now here, but it's the MQ the mindfulness quotient. And you might have noticed, you know, if you go into your interviews and describe some experience, the meditator stock, meditation teacher's stock answer is, well, did you notice that? Were you mindful of it? 
This is what the invitation always is. Can we actually come into direct contact with our experience and know it for what it is? But as we explore this quality of mindfulness for ourselves, as we begin to experience it more continuously, we can see all the layers that are present in it. Um, Acceptance, interest, equanimity, calm, all of these things can be present in mindfulness. It can include and accept anything. The Buddha said that there is no other factor as powerful for the cultivation of wholesome states of mind and the diminishing of unwholesome ones as mindfulness. Just mindfulness is so powerful in that way. But of course, we often have a sense that it's only good mindfulness or our practice is only going well when it's pleasant, when we're experiencing things that feel right to us in some way or another. And when we're struggling with something, this is bad practice. This is not where happiness or mindfulness lies. Again, to turn to that great teacher and philosopher Calvin and Hobbes. Here's a cartoon. They're climbing a tree together, and Calvin is saying, I suppose the secret to happiness is learning to appreciate the moment. I, for example, take great pleasure in being right here, right now, doing what we're doing. And Hobbes says, of course, you're supposed to be at school. (laughs) But Calvin says, I couldn't appreciate those moments. (laughs) So when it's difficult, we we don't remember to bring our mindfulness in. We just struggle and get caught. mindfulness really needs to be brought into every aspect of our experience. As Utejaniya says, if you're aware, just be glad that you're aware. That is the right attitude. So when you are confronted by a defilement and are aware of it, be glad that you're aware of the defilement, even if it does not seem to dissolve. As long as you are aware of the defilement, you are doing well. Basically, you're cultivating your mindfulness. But it's important not to sort of um, elevate mindfulness to this rarefied experience of of clarity and, and purity that we only touch every now and then, or to make it so burdensome, you know, I've got to be mindful, I should be more mindful. I think really more helpful to reframe it, oh, now I get to be mindful. Now there's this possibility, this invitation to know my experience more deeply, more truly, and really helpful to find a way to practice your mindfulness that's very easeful, that's very simple, that's grounded in the body, grounded in your awareness, and just knows enough, just knows enough. The refrain in the Satipatthana Sutta on the foundations of mindfulness that we've referred to a number of times says again and again, mindful to the extent necessary. And I love that. You know, it's not any great depth. It's just to the extent necessary to know what we need to know. Mindfulness as a factor, as we get more and more um, connected with our experience, leads naturally to the next factor, which is investigation or interest. Dhamma-vichaya is the Pali. 
And that's the I in that acronym RAIN that, that I talked about a while ago. A few of you have said that was helpful. Recognition, acceptance, interest or investigation, and non-identification. Joseph, the other night, spoke about um, the difference between relaxed and casual practice or relaxed and casual mindfulness. And I really think that the difference between those two is the cultivation of these two next factors of interest and energy. This is what makes the difference between practice and really being there, being present. And this factor of interest was actually the one that I always felt I was the weakest in. I could get relatively concentrated, fairly calm, could have some energy arise out of practice, but never felt I was quite, uh, that question I've heard a few of you, I'm not getting enough insights. You know, where, where are the insights coming? And I know I would have that feeling too. And there can be a way in our practice or a way sometimes we understand mindfulness that cultivates passivity. We kind of have a sense that we just sit back and watch the show. And yes, that is a helpful way to view practice, but it's not the only way, or we need to really find what the balance of engagement is in our practice. But interest or investigation also doesn't mean that we carry you know, the dissecting tools around in our pocketbook, and every time we get out the scalpel and start to sort of cut away at experience and try deliberately to go through layers and layers to find out what's there and get to the bottom of this, to keep discovering and and rooting out whatever's below. So it's really finding this balance between that. For me, Dhammavichaya has a non-interfering quality. It doesn't change the experience. It just gets closer to it, to see it for as it is. I've heard Joseph refer to it as interested attention, I think is helpful. And on this retreat that I mentioned, as I reflected on this quality and and what would work for me as an invitation to incline the mind in this direction, the word that actually came for me, I hadn't heard people use, and it's only helpful for me, it may not work for you, but it was listening. But it wasn't listening with the ears, it was kind of like this full-body listening And what I related it to was um, what you might do if you're out in nature. And I love to be in nature, and I'm a bird watcher and an animal lover and often out there looking for things or interested in what's there. And if someone says, shh, listen, yes, you listen with the ears, but there's also a way your whole body kind of attunes. All the senses are awake in that moment, and there's just an openness to experience So that's what I would um, feel like when this quality was alive. It's just sort of like the body listening to the body or the mind listening to the mind. There was that sense of connecting or or presence. I can remember on that retreat I spoke about doing walking meditation in the fall, going out there and, you know, the leaves crunching underfoot and that aliveness that can come from this kind of temperature when it's a little brisk, the wind is blowing, and there might be smells in the air. That level of interest, that aliveness and experience, for me, is Dharmavichaya. But it's not an investigation that requires thought or thinking about. As I said, it's just this getting closer to experience, getting more directly in contact with what is 
being willing to stay with our experience so we can see what happens, perhaps see its changing nature, see its qualities more closely. Um, This willingness to be there on an ongoing basis is what cultivates the wisdom of clear seeing because we're there, we're interested, we're connected. We're seeing without a lot of um, projections. Ajahn Chah, a Thai forest meditation master, said this about the seven factors and particularly about investigation. If we have studied about the seven factors of enlightenment, then we'll know what the books say, but we won't have seen the real factors of enlightenment. The real factors of enlightenment arise in the mind. Thus the Buddha came to give us all the various teachings. All the enlightened ones have taught the way out of suffering and their recorded teachings we call the theoretical teachings. This theory originally comes from practice, but it has become merely book learning or words. The real factors of enlightenment have disappeared because we don't know them within ourselves. We don't see them within our own minds. If they arise, they arise out of practice. If they arise out of practice, they are factors leading to enlightenment of the Dhamma, and we can use their arising as an indication that our practice is correct. If we are not practicing rightly, such things will not appear. If we practice in the right way, then we can see the Dhamma. As we say, so we say to keep on practicing, feeling your way gradually and continually investigating. Don't think that you are looking, what you are looking for can be found anywhere other than right here. This kind of understanding which comes from practice leads to surrender or giving up. Until there is complete surrender, we persevere, we persist in our contemplation. If desires or anger and dislike arise in our mind, we aren't indifferent to them. We don't just leave them, but rather take them and investigate to see how and from where they arise. If such moods are already in our mind, then we contemplate and see how they work against us. We see them clearly and understand the difficulties which we cause ourselves by believing and following them. This kind of understanding is not found anywhere other than our own pure mind. So it's just this willingness to contact our experience, whatever it might be, and be interested in it. And then all of that wisdom can arise out of that. As we become interested in what's happening for us, the next factor is being cultivated, and that's a factor of energy or virya. Joseph spoke about this a lot the other night, so I won't go too much into it. But it is just the effort to be aware. That's all it simply means we need to bring to our practice. Of course, we need energy in practice, just the energy to get up in the morning, to stay present, to stay up at night, to sit, to walk. And you can probably remember what your energy is like at the beginning of the retreat, whenever that was for you feeling of sluggishness, of not connecting. And hopefully now, whether you've been here however long it is, eight weeks or two weeks, you can feel how that energy has shifted. And perhaps you have more energy for practice. 
to get up a little earlier or stay up a little later, really to, to start to look at that quality of energy in, in its bigger picture of just the energy of the day and sitting and walking, but also moment to moment. Because we tend to think of energy like a battery, and it's just going to run down. The more we use it, you know, if we're not recharging it, it's just running down. But it's actually the opposite in practice, that we find that the more we put energy in, it actually is recharging us and allowing us to get more and interest, more more connection. For me, an analogy is always uh, going swimming. I love to swim. I love to swim in the ocean, in rivers, in lakes, wherever it is. Um, but nearly always when you swim, the water is cold. And so there's that first moment where you put your foot in and you go, oh, no, you know, why would I want to do this? And the body just kind of recoils and contracts. But you keep going and a little bit deeper than knees, not so bad. But then it starts to get more sensitive as it goes up. And my mind is always going, don't do it. It's not worth it. Don't go in. You know, it's too cold. And I just have to kind of bring to mind all of the times, maybe even yesterday, that I swam. And when I did it, I really enjoyed it. But nearly every time, unless you just do that diving in, which is much better in the, long, in the, in the end, um, the mind just doesn't want to go there, doesn't want to engage in that activity. And you dive in and you come up and you go, what was I thinking? This is great. I love it. I swim and up and down and stay in. But every time there's that resistance, that that conditioned habit that it's not going to work this time. If I do it, I'm going to be cold or tired or whatever is going to happen. So we really have to check in with this attitude of mind. On this retreat, uh, when I felt into what energy or virya was for me, the word I came up with was resolve. And I liked it because sometimes if we think of energy, there's a real doing quality to it. And it's, you know, like I'm, I've got to do more, or I'm not doing enough, or getting kind of amped up about this. And resolve for me has that same quality that I was speaking about before of just really being steady and willing to meet moment after moment what was happening for me. And there was a sturdiness to it and a patience to it that that seemed skillful. So that's the word that has worked for me. F- to say s- to stay sitting through a difficult pain or some upheaval in the practice, to keep coming back to the whole, even when you feel challenged by what's going on. This requires resolve. So it's really, again, a, a sense of commitment. As we put in this extended effort over time, bring this sense of resolve to our practice, it does recharge the batteries. We're not losing energy. We're actually gaining energy, gaining momentum. And out of this momentum, often the next factor can be developed. And that's a factor of, excuse me, rapture or pity. often commonly translated as rapture, so, though I, I, I think it's a little misleading. It sounds so uh, delightful. I'll talk a little bit more about it. Um, but there's a whole range of experiences that we can call pity. 
Other definitions are joyful interest or zestful interest, intense interest. It has a connotation of bliss or delight. Um, it is a mental factor, but it often has strong uh, resonance in the body. The body can resonate to this quality in the mind. But it always arises from this commitment to our practice, where we become so interested in the object of our attention, whether it's very one-pointed or it's more the openness of meditation, out of the interest and the energy, we just delight in what we're paying attention to. There's really a sense that the attention, the mind, doesn't want to be anywhere else, is really happy to be paying attention to what we're paying attention to. This is a traditional definition of Pitti from the Vasudhimaga, which is this very thick book, a lot of commentaries on practice called The Path of Purification. Traditionally, rapture is graded into five categories, minor rapture, momentary rapture, showering rapture, uplifting rapture, and pervading rapture. Minor rapture is generally the first to appear in the progressive development of meditation. It is capable of causing the hairs of the body to rise. Momentary rapture, which is like lightning, comes next but cannot be sustained for very long. Showering rapture runs through the body in waves, producing a thrill but without leaving a lasting impact. Uplifting rapture, which can cause levitation, is more sustained but still tends to disturb concentration. All pervading rapture is said to suffuse the whole body so that it becomes like a full bladder or like a mountain cavern inundated with a mighty flood of water. So whenever we read this, everyone goes, oh, that's what I want. Rapture. When is rapture? You know, where am I on this map? When is rapture going to happen? Well, there's, uh, you never know, but it is out of that sense of being interested, being really connected to the meditation. But it's not always pleasant. We translate it sometimes as bliss, but rapture can be very energetic. It can um, be all sorts of distortions of experience, of swellings and pushings and pullings. All of these kinds of things can can be rapture, not always, but if it's out of this concentrated, interested mind, it can be the experience of, of rapture. But often it can get so strong and actually disturbing to our practice, the energy moving through, that we just actually wished rapture to die down a little, that to actually come into balance. So there's often this arc in the practice of um, an opening to rapture, an interest, and at first it's like exciting, something's going on, and after a while it's okay, enough already with the rapture, where are we going from here? It can actually wear us down, there needs to be a balancing, and it's actually at this time that the shift can happen into the more calming factors. And it's interesting for me that what is such an energetic factor, factor such as rapture can actually lead to the next factor of tranquility. But what I think happens is the mind, as it becomes absorbed into the object, thoughts naturally diminish, the hindrances recede a little. Once the energy calms down, once we become more acclimatized to that uh, type of practice, what happens is peace arises. Calm or tranquility can come. 
So it's, it's, a, it's an interesting shift. And it's not, as I say, that this is always linear, that rapture will happen and then calm. But I can really understand how there can be this progression. And for all of us on this map, as I said, it's not a one-way street. We're, we're moving around and in and out of these qualities all the time. But there can just be a tendency in this direction. But this state of calm or tranquility is one that many of us aren't used to. We're used to being busy, being engaged, being interested, or being nervous, or being worried. And calm comes, and it's like, what is this? Again, I remember sitting in this hall and hearing Michelle McDonald give this talk on the factors of enlightenment. And she's someone that has a lot of interesting stuff in her practice. I mean, really, you know, always stuff going on. And she said the first time that she experienced calm, her, her note was, calm? You're kind of like with a question mark on it, like, what is this? I don't know this. And what can also happen is we confuse it with boredom or nothing happening. It's like we go through all this agitation and a lot of aversion and desire and fantasies, and then it all can calm down a little bit. And we look around and go, hmm, nothing happening. This is boring, you know even wishing back for our old disturbances rather than just sitting there in this neutrality. Really important at this point to notice the wholesome factor of calm if it's present and to appreciate it, not to judge your practice. There should be something else happening. You know, I need to get a little more engaged here and dig something up. Please, to appreciate calm. It can become such a refuge for us once we know it as a mind state, as an experience, and can start to see how with just a few breaths, the way we're really connected, we can invite this steadiness of mind in, this peace of mind in. Really helpful for us to know and experience. Uh, Again, on another retreat I did here, um, happened to be... Whatever the date would have been, we begun after 9-11, 2001. This retreat went on as it did every year, and I was booked to go on the the first half. So it was quite an interesting time to come on retreat with all of that emotion and and fear and and, and anger and sorrow that, that that time brought up in all of us, and then to come to this refuge of IMS where... No news. To turn on, you know, it's like going from 24-7 news to no news. And just the only thing I remember thinking was, well, the planes are still flying. You know, things must be going okay out in the world. But coming in here and just turning off from that, from that barrage of news and speculation and worry and fear, and it was such a relief. And I remember going to my teachers and saying, it's so great, my mind has just gone gotten so calm and quiet. It was like, phew. And I just saw this six weeks of calm and quiet just deepening and deepening, how wonderful that would be. Of course, it didn't happen. I think it was just the mind was so happy to have this refuge that it just was easily easily able to go to that sense of calm. Of course, then I came up with all sorts of other things to think about and worry about. But still, that was such, I, I got to so appreciate calm and peace, having come out of such an agitated time. Calm is the quality, tranquility, that can lead to the next factor of concentration or samadhi. 
And again, concentration is the word we usually use, not a great translation. I think better uh, words like unification of mind or non-distractedness, wholeness of mind, because concentration has a sense of fixedness or even rigidity or narrowness of focus. And a concentrated mind doesn't necessarily have those qualities. It can be very open, very light, very spacious, but undisturbed, undistracted, really fully in its experience. And we build this concentration not by trying hard, not by uh, focusing in in some intense way, but just by successive moments of mindfulness. Gradually this quality can um, accumulate in us. And it's a powerful state of, of mind. The Buddha said, never underestimate the power of a concentrated mind. A concentrated mind becomes, as they say, malleable and wieldy. It's able to turn with wisdom to cultivate these wholesome qualities. And it allows us, again, to stay steady with our experience, to see things clearly as they are. And it invites this next factor, is supported by this next factor and supports the next factor of equanimity or opeka. Also one of the Brahma-vihara, so we'll be practicing it in the last weeks of the retreat. Now this factor of equanimity is one that's often misunderstood, confused with detachment of distancing ourselves from experience, um, disinterested and a negative kind of state. This is not the true experience of equanimity. Shada spoke about it beautifully this morning, about this connected experience that is in balance, that is able to open to the whole range of our experience without being shaken by it, without being sent off balance. If equanimity is too disengaged, it's not true equanimity. We have to be in contact with our experience for to really be equanimous, to really know what's happening and be uh, involved. I did, I've done some t- periods of intensive equanimity practice, and it was really interesting to um, explore this quality and to feel when I would move forward into too much doing or too much wanting to fix or change things and move back into kind of an aloof distance and finding that balance There is a coolness to equanimity, but it's not apathetic or disengaged. It's connected to experience. Again, on that retreat in 9-11, I was interviewing with Joseph, my teacher, and talking about how a lot of the time the mind was very balanced and calm, but I would kind of feel, you know, just right out there, very close by, were all of the thoughts of 9-11 and the fear of not knowing what was going on. And he very wisely said, nothing should be held outside of the practice. Everything needs to be included. And advised me to do a practice where, in a quiet sitting, I would actually deliberately bring to mind or open to those thoughts. And it was such an interesting experience to bring those challenging, distressing thoughts into a mind that was in balance. And how I could hold them. I could still feel all of the feelings, but a sense of capacity, a sense of being able to meet them and not be thrown off balance. Or know that, see that I would get a little off balance 
But the inclination of the mind was to come back into balance through the equanimity. So any time we accept something, just as it is, open to it fully, this is equanimity. Again, not to make it too elevated. You know that equanimity means we're just floating above everything. As, we, as Ajahn Sumedho says, just to be able to say, it's like this. This experience is like this. That's equanimity enough for us to deepen in our practice. And so this quality of equanimity is often there. It's often there in just simple mindfulness when we're knowing what's happening just as it is. So again, part of this practice is to tease out these threads and see when these factors are present. So our whole development becomes feeding the factors of enlightenment and starving the hindrances. Because any time we recognize, accept, work with a hindrance, we are automatically feeding the factors of enlightenment. And any time we feed the factors, any time we support the factors, acknowledge the factors, we're weakening the tendencies of the hindrances. So it really is this balancing. Again, another thing that Joseph said to me that was helpful was finding the thread of wholesome in the unwholesome. So say, for example, for the hindrances, in sleepiness, the thread of the wholesome is calm. And if we can find that thread and enliven it, we can go from sleepiness to calm. Very wholesome state, one of the factors. The same with anger, to find the wisdom or the energy of anger and let that um, diminish the hindrance of anger and arouse the wisdom factor. With restlessness, again, energy, you can take out that thread of energy from the restlessness and invite interest into the practice. And in, in doubt, if the, the hindrance of doubt, the thread of wholesomeness, of skillfulness, is inquiry or investigation, willingness to look at what's actually happening. So uh, we just discover these tools, we discover these maps, these paths and ways of practicing where we can see what feeds the, hindrance, the feeds the factors and diminishes the hindrance. This is the map that we create for ourselves. We get the basic bare bones from our reading, from teachings, from knowing the, the, the Dhamma, but we create the map for ourselves that knows this path, this terrain, knows what works for us, knows and trusts that we have the skillful tools. We know that dwelling on irritation and ill will will just exacerbate that feeling. We know that letting go of views and opinions will bring about equanimity and calm. We see this directly for ourselves, that what works and what gets in the way. And so we learn to balance these factors. Of course, we can't will them. It's not a a situation where we can say, you know, I want more of this and less of that. But noticing what's present, inclining the mind, being willing to find that thread of skillfulness or wholesomeness in our experience, and through that very attention, allowing those beautiful qualities to develop is, is the skillful way to practice. So if we notice the hindrance of restlessness or whatever, to be willing to work with it, to engage in it, to use antidotes. 
to know for ourselves what calm is, to sort of have a sense of the whole spectrum of these settled states of mind, of calm, tranquility, uh, peace, equanimity, that we explore them and know them for ourselves, to be willing to bring in more energy into the practice when that's what's needed, to connect more directly to our experience. If we're feeling passive, kind of laid back in practice, to be willing to get a little more, to notice that and be willing just to come forward enough to meet experience. So practice becomes this flow of balancing. We never get it completely right. It really is so much like the tightrope walker on the tightrope. We're always moving and balancing. There's no one right way. But this willingness to engage and explore is what brings the practice alive. And knowing these maps and being willing to set out and explore them for yourself is what's going to allow these factors to develop. As I said, I'm a a bird watcher and I often read bird books. And it's always interesting to me how I'll read the books and put them away and be out somewhere and see a bird I've never seen before. And just the thought will come, oh, that's a yellow-bellied sapsucker. And I'd never seen, we don't have them back in California, but just the, the information is there and so the recognition can come in that instant. I was also in, living in India a while ago. And again, I li- I'm from Australia and we have very different birds there. And I heard this sound one day. And I thought, well, if a woodpecker was going to make a sound, that's the kind of sound a woodpecker might make. So I started looking and I saw my first woodpecker. So it's just that inclination of the mind. If we have the information and are willing to trust ourselves, to open to experience, to meet it fully, not push away the difficult or try to hold on to what's what's pleasant, all of these experiences can open up for us. They're not that distant from us. So we begin with this simple act of mindfulness, of just knowing what's happening, From that, the whole path can unfold for us. The wisdom and the equanimity, the possibilities are right there as we just continue with our practice. The simple acts of sitting and walking and knowing we're sitting and walking, of eating our food and taking care of the body, all of this leads, if it's done with mindfulness, with care, leads to the development of these factors and greater and greater degrees of freedom. I want to close with the words of the Buddha from the Anguttara Nikaya. Imagine, Uttiya, a royal frontier fortress with strong foundations, strong walls and towers, and a single gate. There at the gate is a wise gatekeeper, experienced and intelligent, who keeps out strangers and lets in only those she knows. As she patrols Along the road around the fortress, she would see not any joints or openings in the wall large enough for even a cat to slip through. And although she wouldn't know exactly how many living beings entered or left the fortress, she would know that whatever living beings of any size entered or left the fortress, they would all leave or enter through that one gate. In the same way, the Tathagata is not concerned that the whole world or half of it, or one-third of it, 
will find freedom by means of the Dhamma. What he does know is this. All of those who have found freedom or are finding freedom or will find freedom have done so by abandoning the five hindrances, their minds well established in the four foundations of mindfulness, developing as they actually are the seven factors of enlightenment. This is how they found freedom or are finding freedom or will find freedom. Let's just sit together for a moment. All of those who have found freedom, or are finding freedom, or will find freedom, have done so by abandoning the five hindrances, their minds well established in the four foundations of mindfulness, developing as they actually are the seven factors of enlightenment. This is how they found freedom, or are finding freedom, or will find freedom. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.